Let's pray for a moment. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your care and love for us. May I be hidden behind the truths of the Scripture. May we give Elihu a fair shake tonight and not automatically assume that we know and how we've already understand what he is and pass by him. Lord, we want to learn. So help me to, to learn myself, to, tell, to teach and train others, etc. Lord, be in the message tonight. Empty me of self, forgive me of sin, and I pray, please pray that you would just fill me with your spirit tonight. We thank you for the blessings of salvation. We thank you for the blessings of being a part of the Gideon ministry and for the Bibles across the world. It's so thrilling to hear how God's word changes lives. It's, it's powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. And Lord, now may we apply it to our lives. May we not just be about someone else, but what do you want me to do? In Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. So three big words for your outline, estimation, interpretation, characterization. Estimation, what were we to make of Elihu? From, I want to say Elihu from Whoville, but that is not where he's from. He is actually from uh, somewhere in the Bible area, not from Whoville. It's interesting, Elihu's sermon is six chapters. Now, you might not think very much about six chapters. Let me just give you a little bit of a, a text consideration. It's longer than 12 of the Old Testament books and longer than 17 of the New Testament books. So his speech is longer than 27 books of the Bible. So it's quite a long sermon. And now on long sermons, Charles Spurgeon, his warning to the long-winded preachers was this. Remember, the congregation says to that preacher, if we go to sleep during the sermon and die today, there are no apostles to restore us back to life. So be careful how long you preach. And so I felt this morning, I just got started, and uh, I try to keep my time in there and, uh, and try to get you out in time. Someday, though, I may just, uh, I'll just let you know, bring your sandwich or something, I don't know. But... Uh, the, the, the one we're in right now is uh, is uh, just, it's hard to get hard to get started and get anywhere. It's so much important information. So first of all, estimation. What are we to make of Elihu? It is interesting that we sometimes we make prejudgment on things. Uh, there was an ornate orator named William Gladstone in England in the eighteen hundreds. Uh, he was it was his code trademark, if you will, but also is his liability. And his a political opponent during that time was Benjamin Disraeli, and he lampooned, which means to publicly criticize, and he said these words regarding William Gladstone. He said, tongue-in-cheek, a sophistical rhetorician, inebriated with the exuberance of his own verbosity, and gifted with egotistical imagination that can all, at all times command an interminable and inconsistent series of arguments to malign an opponent and to glorify himself. So that was a play on words because Mr. Gladstone was such a wordy person. Some would say that fits Elihu because he is, he's just another wordy uh, going on of the three former friends or three current friends or three that were friends, maybe someday friends again. No one knows where, how he arrived, when he arrived on the scene. We don't know how long he has been there. Uh, evidently, he was a descendant of David in chapter 32, verse 2. He was the son of Berachel, the Buzzai of the kindred of Ram. Perhaps that was Aram. Uh, I'm not sure, but a, a, a Hebrew of some kind, Israelite. I would say, remember El, a name for God? Elihu, so El, Elihu, so he probably obviously is a Jewish per, uh, Israelite person, evidently. Now, the occasional quotations from the earlier parts of the debate would indicate that he had sat there in silence for quite some time. 
But the narrator introduces Elihu to us, the narrator being the Holy Spirit. As with any personal introduction, we sometimes we form a first impression. I will have to say, I believe regarding Elihu that some people have a set conviction already and are not willing to, to listen. For example, if you were to come and say, I'm selling bubble gum. I have the best bubble gum in the world. I don't care what color, flavor, smell. I'm not biting into that stuff. I have already determined it's awful. Much more, if you were to come and say, well, I'm going to start treat, treat, teaching on critical theory. I'm going to say, listen, I completely disagree with critical theories. No matter what you, how you try to paint it, I'm not going to agree. If you say, well, I, I'm an anti-Semitic person, I'm going to teach you about this, I'm going to say, listen, I don't have, really want to listen to what you have to say about Israel because I am not anti-Semitic toward Israel. We're going to teach on Elihu. I know about Elihu already, Pastor. I already know he's just like the three former friends or three friends of who's already given these and not had any, accused Job of being uh, out uh, of God's will, of being sinful and to repent. He's, just, he's not. Before you paint this brush and say that Elihu is just in the same camp as the three, hold the horses, at least for tonight, for the next 25 minutes. Look, what is, look, what, look how he's introduced. For it in our text. And his wrath was kindled. The wrath of Elihu was kindled. The son of Berechel, the Buzzite of the, of the kindred of Ram against Job, was his wrath kindled because he justified himself rather than God. Now, just for a moment, if someone else was justifying themselves rather than God, wouldn't we be just a little bit, uh, a little bit of self, a little bit of righteous indignation? Listen, God's the greatest. You're not. So we have a little bit, in, so before you throw him under the bus tonight, please, let's look what the Bible says. Also kindled against his three friends was his wrath kindled, because they had found no answer, and yet they condemned Job. I'm telling you, I'm with Elihu on that. I think his friends have just thrown him under the bus and, and said these things and, and started out as good friends, but now they, their, their narrow vision of what, who God is and what God's doing, and Job must be wrong. That was their decision. Because he has sinned. So, I'd be a little bit aggravated with him too. Verse 4. Elihu had waited till Job had spoken because they were elder than he. I'm telling you, someone who respects their elders, I'm for that. I'm for that too. If he, we think though, we've always spent, or maybe you maybe haven't done this, but we think, well, it's just, sir, it's just because he's just getting ready to unload and he's not really genuine. How do you know he's not genuine? This is the Holy Spirit telling us about Elihu, not our conjecture. And just, I get, sometimes we get this, we've got it in our mind what it is instead of listening. I've done it with my wife several times in the last, well, not in the last 20 years, but before it. No. I'm not listening. I'm hearing. She's not said that for quite a while. Woot, woot. I, I, I'm, I'm hearing. I'm not listening, but I'm hearing what she says. And so I respond to something. Uh, and you, have you ever done that, man? You're listening for a while, and you say something that has nothing to do with what she's talking about, and you get caught doing that? Uh, am I the only one? Okay, good. All of that. Okay, wow. Woohoo! All right. Verse 5. Don't worry, I'm not getting sidetracked on that thing like I did this morning. When Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, then his wrath was kindled. 
It's like these men have just, just done Job wrong and they've not done him right. So, you know, I want to set some things straight. So, bef- again, honestly, and I, before I studied Job, then I've never, this is the first time I've ever preached on Job, perhaps the last. But I always had in my mind that he was just a fourth friend, just like the previous three. But after looking through and studying ahead and looking through this, I, I think maybe not so much. So, number one, estimation. What are we to make of Elihu? Uh, interesting. Uh, now, there, as we went through, I was I was so taken up, not taken aback, but surprised when Mr. Lauderdale went this morning through the ideas of what the thorn in the flesh is for Paul. I'd never heard all those ailments that it might be. But regarding Elihu, egotism is personified in Elihu's life. Some would say his arrogance. He's arrogance on two legs. He is a bombastic, a cocky upstart with nothing to offer to debate but a wordy, brash, out, worn-out arguments, a rehashing of worn-out arguments. There seem to be at least two reasons now why people think that he's arrogant and all these different things. Number one, the first is perpetuated prejudice against Elihu. It was uh, Charles Spurgeon, who was a contemporary with Gladstone and Disraeli there in Great Britain. He nurtured a love for commentaries, but he said this regarding commentaries. He said that they're often like sheep. They follow one after another, and they all go astray. So once we're introduced to Elihu as a swaggering know-it-all, well then I've got to interpret all that we see and read as in a swaggering know-it-alls instead of what the Bible actually says. It's, it's, it's easy to read into the tone if we've already set or made up our mind. If you were to try to tell me that bubble gum is good, it would, it would, you'd lose weight, Pastor, if you'd eat bubble gum. I'm still not eating it. I don't care. I would like to, like to get this belly off, I would, but it's not worth eating bubble gum for. So I'm telling you, I'm dead set against it. Don't be dead set against what Elihu he is and what he's here for. It's perpetuated prejudice against Elihu. And second is Elihu's reputation suffers as a failure to take our interpretative, interpretative cues from the text itself and from the text alone. Elihu's speech are often misread three ways. First of all, reading between the lines and attitude and tone into Elihu's speech that's not necessary or even in the text. So we say, when he says that, he doesn't really mean that. Well, how do we know he doesn't mean that? The Holy Spirit wrote it for us to learn from. Secondly, ignoring the narrator's inspired portrayer of Elihu. We, we read these first six verses. Oh, he didn't really mean that. Oh, do you see how angry he is? He thinks he's so much better than those guys. And he's going up, he's going to tell Job what to do. Well, I'm just telling you, no matter what he says, he's just off his rocker. Instead of just calmly, what does the Bible say? If God's being maligned by anyone, you say, but pastor, let's hold our finger there. Job chapter 40, please. To answer your question, no one asked a question. Well, maybe it's in your mind. Job chapter 40. Did would Job actually make himself righteous even more than God? Possibly. Well, Job 40, verse 1, Moreover the Lord answered Job and said, Shall he that contendeth with the Almighty instruct him? He that reproveth God, let him answer it. And Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I'm, I'm, I'm vile. What shall I answer thee? I will lay mine hand upon my mouth. Once have I spoken. But I will not answer thee, not answer yea twice, but I will proceed no further. Then answered the Lord unto Job out of the whirlwind, and said, Gird up thy loins now like a man. 
I will demand of thee and declare thou unto me. And listen to verse 8. Will thou also disannul my judgment? Wilt thou condemn me that thou mayest be righteous? I'm telling you, Job went over the line there. Over the line. Let's read what the Bible says clearly. Overlooking, and thirdly, why we do this, overlooking significant parallels. Elihu's speech and God's final answer to Job, there's a lot of parallels. So, Please don't write off what we learn from Elihu. It's not just recycled hot air. Consider the evidence for the alternatives. He's not the divine spokesman. He is a human, and there, he's not infallible. He is fallible. His assessment of Job may not be flawless, but his transitions are attention from the errors of Job's friends to the answer of Job's God. I'm telling you, there's a lot more to Elihu's speeches than simply a rehashing of all the three friends have already said over and over. There's more to it than that. He sees things quite different. He breaks the logjam and, uh, uh, and leverages a significant shift in the debate. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar have argued that Job is suffering because of his sin. Elihu observes that Job is sinning because of his suffering. That's a big difference. They say Job suffered because of his sin. No, he's sinning because of his suffering. And he so wants to set things right that he's even said, I'm righteous whether God is or and I'm paraphrasing. I'm righteous even if God is or isn't. What, just read the verse. Now he knows God is righteous. Have you ever said sometimes in, in a, in, when people are... Obviously, if you're in the hospital, you have a free pass on whatever you say because you're probably on some kind of a medication that doesn't make, help you think right. But sometimes we're not in the hospital. And we, and we say, boy, you know, just, I, I'm in a lot of pain. And, and, we, and we just out with something comes that shouldn't have come out. Job does that in order to make his stand, his affidavit, that he is righteous. He's gone a little far last time. So view, views of Elihu... Uh, few characters in Scripture are more found in contempt than Elihu, and I think, right, unrightly so, they're the dislikables. I was thinking of a dislikable in Scripture. In your mind, think of the most heinous characters. The first person that comes to my mind is Doeg. I'm not sure if I pronounce that right. Doeg, you know who Doeg the Edomite was? They went, Saul went after David, that David got the sword of Goliath. Saul goes over there. Did you, did you get the sword? Well, David came, yes. And, and soldiers fall on the 80 priests. Fall on the Oh, we're not doing that. Doeg the Edomite says, okay, I'll do it. And he slaughters 80 priests at Shiloh. Uh, it's, wow, that's bad. So uh, let's not put him in that category, please, Mr. Elihu. One man, David Freeman, sort of summarizes what the negative feelings, a comparative youngster, brash at that, who speaks to and at everybody, criticizing the friends for inferior debating, but at the same time, attacking Job for his character. He argues vigorously, broking neither interruption nor rejoinder, while Elihu is highly critical of all who have preceded him and very scornful in his excessively polite fashion, he does not add much to the sum of human knowledge. In spite of his insistence on being heard and his rapid-fire, non-speaking locatiousness, talkativeness, he earns the ultimate reward. He's totally ignored. 
I, 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 that's the one side of negativism. Some have echoed the same arguments of Elihu's irrelevance, his allegedly pompous self-introduction, or his supposed failure to contribute anything new to the debate, or the most unkindness cut of all is his total disregard by his peers and by God. Even my favorite commentator, Henry Morris, sees Elihu as a braggart spoiling for a theological fight. I agree with Henry Morris on like 99% of the things. That would be one I probably would disagree. He says that though Job is still trusting God at the end of chapter 31, Satan still had one more trick up his sleeve, namely Elihu, who was impressed with his own spiritual insights and was looking for opportunity to demonstrate them. Now, on the other hand, many of us, many are convinced that Elihu's personality and message have been completely misunderstood. William Brown calls such attacks on Elihu as nothing less than character assassination done under the guise of scholarly objectivity. Matthew Henry, no less, says Elihu was a man of great modesty and humility and a great sense and courage. You see, see how you look at it. I'm looking at bubblegum as the, the, the worst invention in the world because it sticks on things and, and you look under a table and it's all over the place and it sticks on my shoes and, and it just, I, I just have an aversion to bubblegum. You're looking at someone selling bubblegum. Yes, bring it on. I'll take whatever flavor you got. Give me the more. The more you have, the better I like it. And I was chewing. It's a choir director's worst nightmare, someone chewing gum while they're singing. Sorry. Not quite the worst nightmare, but it's close. So please don't, don't just write him off because you already know. Now, I have to say, in the, in the case of bubblegum, I do already know, although I've never eaten a bubblegum piece in my entire life. It just, it just doesn't strike me right. But I know, I know, I know what I know. You know, perhaps someday I'm 85 years old, Mr. Womack and I, he's like 115. We're sitting on a porch together, and he says, Pastor Tim! I got some bubble gum for you like a piece. I say, you know what? I'm about to die, and I'll just try one. And I have it. It's like, wow, it's not as bad as I thought. I should have thought about this 85 years earlier. Yeah, you probably should have, Pastor. <laughs> if we're still friends by then, brother. <laughs> I imagine by the time you're 115 and I'm 85, we'll have been, I'm hoping we've been in heaven for a while together. I'm really hoping. I know, I, I, try to, I shouldn't be humorous, but sometimes we need to laugh. It helps things uh, go along a little better. And what is a classic of Job from Understand, the argument of the book of Job unfolded. Princeton professor William Henry Green puts his finger on the problem. He says, the degree of attention and weight we give to the inspired introduction of Elihu's person and to the actual content of Elihu's speech, we're not listening to the words coming out of God's mouth. And now after, if you give it a fair shake, honest fair shake, and you still find him ab abrasive, that's okay. But please don't, play, please don't find him abrasive without at least trying to see what he's saying. So that is the, the estimation, what are we to make of Elihu? Second is interpretation, keys for interpreting Elihu, verse 1, the significance of spirit-inspired narrative. So these three men ceased to enter Job because he was righteous in his own eyes, verse 2, uh, then was kindled the wrath of Elihu. Now, who is speaking here? Who is the narrator? It is really God. God is telling us what's going on. God is setting the stage for that. It's like you're trying to sell something or to do somebody. 
It's like when, when somebody's introduced, you want to give them, it's like standing in this corner, at, in one corner, standing at seven foot six inches, weighing 555 pounds from Armenia, Andre the Giant. Standing in the other corner, weighing more than he should, balding at the top, has never fought a fight in his life, is going to get absolutely massacred by one big pan from Andre, stands Tim Wright. And they're off. See, typically you want to paint the person in, in their best light. Andre the Giant, who can shout real loud, everybody move! Who's not a great actor, but he fit the bill there in that one movie. Who's he? How do they know who that is? How's he even in this thing? I don't know. But he's going to be done, over and done in the first round. I got that right if it's me, because I'm, I'm just probably turn around and take my $500 for being in and run the other way. So when God introduces Elihu to us, we should pay attention. He's not exaggerating. He is not, try, he's not trying to get you to unlike him or to be... He's, he's just telling you the truth. And he wants us to, as we read these six chapters, to understand who Elihu is. He's not this, like the three over here who are quiet now, thank the Lord. The six features, if you're jotting down notes, first feature of why we can be kindly disposed, good, I shorten it, good vibes, why we can have good vibes toward Elihu. Number one, Elihu's introduction by the narrator contains no hint of censure. C-E-N-S-U-R-E. There's no hint of censure. Oh, and that was a bad thing. He was angry at those three friends and he shouldn't have been because they weren't, or he was angry at Job. It doesn't say he shouldn't have been angry at Job. It just said he was. Truth does not change by your ability to stomach it. We should tell that to our nation. Truth is the truth. Ontology wins every time. God will rule and reign. He will. And the kingdoms that go against God, where are they today? They're in the dustbins. There's only one nation that has lasted for nearly, what, 4,000 years or more because God has blessed them and they're still alive today. Do you think we have a... A chance of lasting 4,000 years, America? If we last 40 more days, and I trust we will, it's those who follow God's plan. The narrator reports the reason the three friends have ceased answering Job. The reason for Elihu's anger with Job. The reason for Elihu's anger with the three friends. The reason for Elihu had not spoken previously and why he is compelled to speak now. For now, nothing in the narrator compels us to view Elihu's wrath negatively. Is it possibly righteous, righteous indignation? The three friends have condemned Job unjustly. Job has elevated himself and condemned God unjustly. I'm telling you, he's, he's, he's doing the right thing. Have you ever had people tell you things you just don't want to hear? Happens to me some, well, different times, yes. We just, but, you know, I probably needed to hear that because it helps me to th- step back because my son tells me to see things from both sides, both views. And I pretty much have, you know, this is Tim's way the right way, and then there's everybody else's way. <laughs> but that is not right. There are more things than the other. And so uh, my boss asked me a question just this past Friday uh, we have a good relationship, but she asked me a question. Now, now, now don't, don't take this wrong, but, don't take this wrong, but how are you, 
what are you coding that to uh, when you do your Bible studies? What code are you putting on that? For I said, I have like 10, I have 10 different codes at work I use for my hours. I've got to keep this in line and keep it all at the same percentage so I keep my hours the same. And I've got 10 different codes. So it, it takes me a little while to figure out how many hours to put in each code for this two weeks. I said, I've got hours in every single code that, that would fit the bill. So we, we're, we're covered on that. But it's like, you know, I, have you ever had things hit you wrong? It's like, who is that to say, you know, I, I'm trying to do the right thing. See, I think the spiritual needs of people outweigh any physical need. I'm just, I mean, if you can get a senior who knows the Lord as Savior, they can handle things a whole lot better when we know where we're going. I know where I'm, when I pass from, I know where I'm going. And if you can get them to see that, our physical bodies are going to wear out and they're going to be, they're going to be done. It's, I have a quote from next, next week, probably from, from John Quincy Adams about his life. They ask him, how are you doing? Well, John Quincy Adams is doing well, but my body's becoming dilapidated, and it's soon time for me to move out. But John Quincy Adams is doing quite well. Our bodies are becoming dilapidated, dilapidated, something like that. They're wearing down. They are. That's the law of entropy, increasing entropy. The second law of thermodynamics. We'll leave that alone. Number two, the narrator implies that Elihu possesses a cor- correct perception of the real problem. Verse 2, 32 2. And he was, wrath was kindled of Elihu, the son of Berachel, the Buzzite of the wrath of kindred of Ram, uh, against Job, and his wrath kindled because he justified himself rather than God. A- and that was wrong. Job had justified himself rather than God. We read the verses earlier on. Because, because we make this straightforward observation, Elihu was angry with Job because he justified himself rather than God. And that was wrong of Job to do. This unadorned report carries the authoritative weight of the narrator's omniscience. He knew what Elihu was thinking and why he was thinking that. That's, that's God knew that. Elihu was right. Intentionally or not, Job was justifying himself at the expense of God's righteousness. I don't think Job set out at the beginning of the thing to do that, but by the time he got carried, you know, a little bit, you went over the board a little bit there. Third, narrator describes Elihu's appropriate dissatisfaction with the failure of other friends. In verse 2, his anger was kindled against Job. His anger was kindled against the other friends because they were saying wrong things about Job. These three friends that condemned him. Job. Elihu's fourthly, Elihu's introduction by the narrator highlights a unique emotional parallel between Elihu and God. We find then that the answer that God gives, we just read it earlier on, in verse 38, uh, 38 verse 1, he says to, uh, to Job in 38, 1, 38, 2, who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? At the end of 33, look what uh, Elihu says in the 30 with 3. Now, mark well, O Job, hearken unto me, and hold thy peace, and I will speak. If thou hast anything to say, answer me. Speak, for I desire to justify thee. We stop, we, we stop, we read that first, and we say, listen, he doesn't really mean that. He's got some kind of ulterior motive. How about if he really means that? If thou hast anything to say, answer me. Speak, for I desire to justify thee. I desire to see you do right. I desire for your name to be cleared. I desire for you to have the right relationship with God. But we say, oh no, he's just saying that because he wants to harp on something else. Why do we do that? Because we've got this preconceived prejudice against Elihu. 
Number five, the narrator credits Elihu with an authentic respect for his elders, verse four, because they were elder than he. Some interpret this as self-professed deference, as pragmatic and insincere. Why can't it be that he was just a man of, of God who wanted to help? It's, why does it have to be sarcasm? We don't, I don't see a parenthesis here. And he said that in a sarcastic manner. As he had been waiting, waiting for the other three to speak. Sometimes, you know, we want to speak to someone, but I'm not going to, I try not to do it. I don't say I always do it. But if someone's carrying on a conversation, even though I want to talk with them, I'm going to wait and not speak with them, even if it means I have to speak to the next service. If someone's in a good, a good conversation going on, that's between, and I don't want to interrupt nice. Oh, pastor, I have done it. I, I don't mean to do it. Sometimes, whatever. I try to. That deference. And he's giving deference to the older men. And finally, Elihu's the, the last good vibe. Elihu's exception from God's displeasure. Well, we have to look at verse chapter 42, verse 7, to hear see what it's talking about. 42, 7. This is the great chapter. Can't wait to get to 42, 7. 42, sorry. Verse 7. And it was so that after the Lord had spoken these words unto Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, my wrath is kindled against thee and against thy how many friends? Two friends. For ye have not spoken of me the thing that is right as my servant Job hath. So who is glaringly absent? Elihu. Elihu's not there. So exemption from God. Oh, but pastor, look what he says. Some people say, well, Elihu got his comeuppance right off the bat. Look at 38, pastor. Go over here. Look at 38. I don't know why I keep going back to that because no one's saying that, but look what it says in 38, 1, or 38, 2. Elihu's done in 37, 24, 38, 2. Who is this that darkeneth counsel by the words without knowledge? But he's not talking to Elihu. 38, 1. Then the Lord answered, Job, not Elihu. And so this exemption is real. I like what D.A. Carson says. If he is not praised, it is because his contribution is eclipsed by what God himself says. And if he is not criticized, it is because he says nothing amiss. Hmm. The same one that He's digging, he's digging teeth, a tire tread out from his teeth from most uh, independent Baptists because he's has been under the bus his entire life and hasn't he's been exhausted under the bus. So we find he, he has no reasons there. The significance of Elihu's words, uh, the similarities between Elihu and the friends, uh, we find except for chapter 33, someone says Elihu's speeches merely reiterate, reiterate the trite dogmas of his friends. I don't think so. The similarities, Elihu's Elihu's spirit is markedly different from the others. He allows the narrator's depiction of Elihu to govern his opinion. If we allow what the Bible says, we can understand he's not the person who's trying to really be combative and destroy Job. He's trying to help Job think clearly. Secondly, Elihu's focus is unique in 32.3. Also against his three friends with his wrath kindled because they found no answer, yet condemned Job. He's not going down that road. He's going to say, Job, listen, we're thinking about incorrectly here. God is righteous. And the three friends have their figuratively fingers in their ears, and they don't want to hear anything that is said from Job. Elihu has listened. It's like when you go to the jury, to sit on the jury. 
I'm off tomorrow again, but I called, woohoo. But you go in there, sit, and you're listening, and they've got the people up in the box who are going to be on the jury, unless they get somehow off that jury, they're going to be sitting there as the jury. And you've got those 60 people in the back who somehow not been numbered yet. And they're, and you're, but you're supposed to, even though in the back row, you're supposed to be listening to all the questions the lawyers are asking, was asking me and the 12 other, 13 other people there. You're supposed to be listening because if you get called up, if I get excused and they call you up, You've got to say, have you heard all the questions? Yes. Can you serve on a jury? Without? Yes. You agree? Yes. So you have to have listened to that. He's listened. He can speak with confidence. And thirdly, Elihu speaks with a confidence and passion that distinguish him from the others. He's compassionate toward Job. The other three friends at the end were not so compassionate. And finally, characterization. So you have estimation, interpretation, characterization, the literary function of Elihu. He is a foil. Protagonists are the central characters most indispensable to the plot. Antagonists are the main adversaries or forces arrayed against the central characters. And foils are those characters who heighten the central character by providing a contrast or occasionally a parallel. Elihu's a foil in his character. Now, who's the central character of the story? It is God. The central human character would be uh, Job. But the foil that he's helping out is God, not Job. He's supporting, if you would, God's word to Job. He's heightening the central character of God, not primarily by the way of contrast, but by parallel and the precision, diagnosis, and perceptiveness of what is really going on. He does not throw Job under the repentance as the problem bus. I've used it over and over, sorry, but he does not throw Job there. He says, listen, God is righteous, and we are not, and he is the one we should be worshiping. And so as we look into this next time, we'll look at the argument of Elihu. Again, as you read, if you can read through these chapters, 32 to 37, it'd be very helpful for next week, but don't have this preconceived glasses well, I, I know because he's a, he is a terrible person. What, what he really means, he's just saying that, sorry, don't do that. Let's start with what the Bible says from the narrator and then use that as our lens as we read Scripture. Let's pray together. Help us, Lord, as we study next week the message from Elihu. Lord, you are a great God. If we see nothing else, we can reiterate, this is about you. We see God through the life of Job. We see you, Lord. Help us to worship you, even in troublesome times. May we seek your way. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.